Well, good morning, Good News Church. How are you? My name is Nicholas, and thank you, Pastor Walt, for those kind words. Um, thank you for the opportunity to, to speak today. So I, I'm the communications director here, and uh, uh, I've been here uh, on the team for about eight years. And what that usually means is that I get to communicate, but not in a public speaking role. I get to do a lot of the behind-the-scenes behind stuff, and I actually like that. Uh, that, that. That works out well for me most of the time, except for today. Um, what you may not know is that we have a sermon planning team. We have a, a group of pastors and directors we meet every single week and, and talk about and plan the sermons, the messages that we're going to be preaching in the upcoming weeks and months. And uh, just giving feedback and things like that. And I'm on that team. And for, for a number of months now, the, the team has been harassing me to try to get up here and do this. So my hope is that after today, you'll all send an email to Pastor Raphael, tell him how horrible it was. And I won't have to do this again. Can, you, can, can we do that? We make a deal? No? Okay. Well. <laughs> um, but while, while I'm not, I don't necessarily consider myself a great public speaker. I do have a passion about the gospel, about the good news. I care about the good news because I think it transforms us in ways that we may not be ready for, in ways that we don't expect. And I think if we really dig in to this gospel of Luke and, and, and understand what this upside down kingdom is all about, it'll start unco uncovering parts of our lives that we never knew needed to be given over to the gospel of Christ. And so what I have today is a message about that, but let's quickly go back and talk about where we've been. So we're in in this sermon series on Luke, and we're going to be in it for a while, and we've been in it since uh, November. And, uh, and, and if you'll remember, in Luke chapter 1, Luke is setting up the story. He's, he's getting us thinking about things working in the opposite way that they should. A woman who is too old to have a kid uh, gives birth to John the Baptist. And Mary, a virgin, is told that she's going to conceive and, and, and have the Messiah. In, in Luke chapter 2, you have Jesus being born, the king coming and being born in the most humble, upside-down way possible. He was born in a barn, right? And the, the announcement from angels is given to shepherds, the lowliest in society. In chapter 3, we have John the Baptist, who is who's preaching uh, repentance and baptism, not just for the Gentiles, but also the Jews now. And, and in, in Luke chapter 4, just a couple weeks ago, Pastor Walt was talking about the, the, the battle for the kingdom, this cosmic battle of good versus evil that has been going on uh, for, since the beginning of time. And so, so now today, we're going to get started into Jesus' ministry, and we're going to find out what type of kingdom this is going to be that he is setting up. And so today, Catherine Said is going to come, and she's going to read the scripture. If you'd please stand for the reading of scripture today. Luke four fourteen through 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built. So they would throw him down the cliff, but passing through their midst, he went away. Thank you. You can be seated. So, have you ever been watching a movie or a TV show, and, and all of a sudden something big and dramatic happens, and you missed it? Maybe, maybe, uh, uh, you know, maybe the plane crashes, or someone comes out of nowhere, and uh, someone pulls a gun, and you're like, wait, 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 I missed it, wait, go back. How, how did this happen? How did we get here? That's a little bit of how I feel when we're reading this passage. I mean, think about it. Jesus is in the synagogue, and, um, and he's reading from Isaiah, and everybody's listening to him, and he says some stuff, and then all of a sudden, they're trying to run him off a cliff. What happened? What did he say? What made them so mad? There's going to be times when we're reading the Bible, and there's going to be something that does not make sense to us, or maybe um, there's a cultural thing going on, or, or maybe we just miss it, you know? And I want to say, that's okay. That is perfectly normal. Right. And, and, and I, I can I can feel like that a lot. But what's not normal is is or what's not OK is just to let it go, to just ignore it and move on. <clears throat> it's also not OK to just assume we know what it means and, and just go from there. We need to dig deeper. We need to wrestle with the scripture and figure out what is going on. And there's a few things that we can do. Whenever you run into something you may not understand. And so, so one, you can look at the verses around it. You can see what scriptures and passages are connected to this verse. You can also ask somebody. You can ask a pastor or your small group leader, somebody uh, that, that might know more than you about it. Uh, the third thing you can do is some study, you know, and get, get your hands dirty and, and, and dive into some books or podcasts. Uh, a couple of the resources that we've been using as we've been diving into Luke, um, I wanted to share with you uh, this book called Luke for Everyone by N.T. Wright. Do you have that on the screen? Uh, th- this is a really great commentary by N.T. Wright. And anything you can get, a, get your hands on of his is going to be good. But this breaks Luke down into really easy to understand sort of ways. A podcast I really like is called the Pillar Seminary Podcast. And, and it just gives a lot of background about the Bible. And you just kind of see things more in context. And, uh, and if you're not into books or, vi- or, or podcasts, maybe you just like watching video. Uh, if you go to thebibleproject.com, they have a ton of video resources on YouTube that, that they, they've walked through every single book in the Bible and lots of different themes. And they take this really complex stuff and make it so easy to understand. Just really helpful resources. And so those are some of the things 
that we can do. We can, we can read the scriptures around it. We can ask somebody. We can do some Bible study. The fourth thing that we can do is we can pray. We can ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us what he has to say in this passage. And so um, I, I, I'm not a pastor. I don't have a, a, a Bible degree. I didn't go to Bible school. I, I, I don't know of, of, about um, biblical history and all of that sort of stuff. But um, I can do those four things. And so that's kind of what I've done to sort of dig in this passage and figure out what is going on here. Um, Jesus is bringing the good news in this text, he's, he's telling of the good news, but it doesn't sound like good news to the people that are hearing it, right? It sounds like bad news. Have you ever misunderstood someone? Maybe they, they, they said they had good news, but it sounded like bad news. Or they said, uh, I've got good news and I've got bad news. You know, I heard a story of uh, some soldiers who were in combat and uh, they had been pinned down for days. And, uh, you know, it was, they were in the jungle and it was hot and wet and sticky and, uh, and the sergeant comes to them and says, well, I've got good news and I've got bad news. <clears throat> the, uh, the good news is that you're all getting a change of underwear. And everyone cheered, yeah. The bad news is that Smith, you're changing with Thompson. And Jones, you're going to change with Pete. And... Sorry. That's some bad news. <laughs> oh... All right, let's recover. Uh, Luke, <laughs> so, so, so Luke is, is starting out Jesus' story. He's starting out his ministry by, by Jesus telling good news, but it doesn't sound like good news. It sounds like bad news. And I wonder what we would expect Jesus to say if he started his ministry today. What if he came into the church today and, and told us about the good news? Would it sound like good news or would it sound like bad news? What, what would we expect him to say or do? Um, so let's set up the story. Let's set, set up the scene. So Jesus is in Nazareth. Nazareth is his hometown. He grew up here. I don't know if you've ever uh, grown up somewhere and then moved away and gone back or something like that. I grew up in a little town called Exira. It's in Iowa. It's about an hour and a half away. And, uh, and there's 800 people in the town. It's really small, right? Everybody knows you. Everybody knows your family, your parents. And, uh, and every time I go home, visit my mom and go to the farm... Uh, there, there's always this mixed emotions. On the one hand, there's uh, a sense of nostalgia because uh, I have a lot of great memories there. I, that's where the grade school was, the high school's over there. We used to play baseball here or walk this way to the library or my grandma's house. I remember all this, and there's a, the, the, the good, good feelings. But there, there's also a little bit of uncomfortable feeling if I'm going to run into somebody that only knew me from back then, not because I don't like them, not, not because there's anything wrong with them. It's just, they only know me from way back then. I haven't lived in my hometown in a decade and a half, and I'm a completely different person now. I've, I've gotten married. I, I have kids, you know, I'm just, just a very different person. Everybody there calls me Nick. That's what I went by Nick when I, when, when I was a kid. And, and that's uh, yeah. And I wonder if that sort of tension is something that, that Jesus was feeling when he's in his hometown. Because, because they, they had these good, good memories, but they're, they're, they all knew him from back then. And he'd been traveling around doing miracles and teaching in all these different towns. 
So Jesus goes to the synagogue. He's, he, he's a part of the, the Jewish tradition and the culture there. And, uh, and we know a little bit about what those services might have looked like. There, there, a typical syn- synagogue service would, they'd have some hymns and some prayers. They'd read uh, a, a passage from the old, from the, uh, excuse me, from the Torah, from the law, those first five books of the Old Testament. But they'd also read something from, from the prophets, from the rest of Hebrew, Hebrew scripture. And that first passage was probably prescribed, that, that Torah reading. They, they knew what they were going to read uh, for certain days. But the second reading from the prophets was a little more flexible. You could pick what scripture you're going to read that day. And Jesus probably selected the scripture that he did. And so the first question I have is, why did he pick this one? I have to think that there's a reason in his picking of this passage from Isaiah. And and in the first verse in Isaiah, it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now let's stop right there because in verse 14, He said that it says that he came out of the wilderness full of the spirit. And this idea of the Holy Spirit is one that Luke comes back to over and over. In fact, Luke talks about the Holy Spirit more than any other gospel writer, more than Matthew, Mark or John. The the idea of, of the spirit comes up over and over. And even in just the first few chapters, we've already seen the Holy Spirit show up in John the Baptist before he was even born. Uh, the Holy Spirit came upon Mary as she sang her song about Jesus and his life. The Holy Spirit came in the form of a dove uh, at Jesus' baptism. And we're going to see it over and over and over throughout the book of Luke, uh, him talking about the Spirit. And it makes sense because Luke also writes Acts. And in Acts chapter 2, the, the, the Holy Spirit comes to the church on the day of Pentecost. And so here... Luke is setting up the story by saying the spirit of the Lord is, is upon Jesus to say something that's going to be important. You better listen up because he's about to tell us what kind of ministry he's going to bring. Here in his inaugural sermon, the spirit is leading him to talk about this kingdom that he's setting up. So in verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And there's two phrases right there. Good news and the poor are really important to understand. Because when we think about the poor, we're usually thinking about those without any money and, 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 and the homeless. And while it did include that, in Hebrew culture, it was much more than just uh, having to do with money. To be the poor would be anybody on the outside edges of society. Anybody who is an outcast. And for them, that could have been lots of people. That could have been women and children and their, 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 their status in society. It could have been people who had leprosy and different diseases. It could have been foreigners in the land. It included a lot of people. Even later on in Jesus' ministry, he goes and hangs out with Zacchaeus and Levi. And uh, and they were tax collectors, but they were also considered outcasts in society. They would be the poor. And Jesus is saying, I've come for them. I've come for the poor. This is who Jesus is going to. And this is going to be a primary theme throughout the rest of Luke as, as we read in the upcoming weeks and months, look for these, these places where Jesus is going to the poor. This is the kind of kingdom he's setting up. And in verse 20, it said, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing and all spoke well of him. And marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Now, 
Why did they marvel? Why did they marvel at what Jesus had to say? Wasn't he just reading the passage? It's kind of like uh, just a couple minutes ago, we read through, through the whole passage, but they were fixed on him. They were on the edge of their seats. Why? Why did they marvel? What was so special about what he said? Well, to dig into that, I want to know a little bit about what he read. He was quoting from Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. And so we should find out a little bit of background about where this came from. You see, in, in 587 B.C., Jerusalem was destroyed and the Jews were carried off into exile to the empire of Babylon. And it was during this time of exile that Israel started to create a strong theology of justice, of wrongs being turned right. You know, everybody has different ideas about what justice is. You have social, social justice, like feeding the poor and helping the homeless. Some people, when they hear justice, they think judgment and courtroom and like the, the verdict coming down. Other people think of marching on Washington and making posters and t-shirts. And and everybody has different ideas about what justice looks like. And for Israel, they had created a strong theology of justice because uh, for them, it really meant something. It's interesting how when you are the privileged class in society, you don't care that much about justice because everything's already going pretty right for you. But if you really want to know about justice, if you want to study justice, if you want to understand what justice is, you talk to somebody that's been oppressed. You talk to somebody that that has has felt some persecution, that has been discriminated against, has felt some racism. They're going to know a little bit about justice. They're going to care about justice. And that's where Israel was right now. They cared about justice. For them, during this time, they started writing about justice through their prophets. Their prophets start writing about the Messiah, the the one who's going to come one day and and turn everything right. They start talking about the day of the Lord, and they start writing a lot about the year of Jubilee. And this year of Jubilee was was an idea of a year when all of the land that had ever been lost to anybody would be given back, whether it was through, uh, through you, know, you owed it to somebody or it was stolen from you or whatever, the land would be given back. Imagine if MasterCard called you up and they said, today, all of your credit card debt is wiped clean. That'd be awesome, right? All your, your account balance is zero. You don't owe us anything. Now imagine they do that for everyone everywhere. That's year of Jubilee. That would be awesome because that doesn't happen. But that's how they, that's what they were thinking about was this amazing year when, when everything would be turned back to the way it was supposed to be. And it was during this time that in Isaiah, the prophet writes, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. I won't read the whole thing, but in verse two, it says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, what's fascinating is that when Jesus quotes this passage, he stops right before the line, the day of vengeance of our God. Now, why did he do that? Well, you could just say, well, there's a comma right there. He had to stop somewhere. Maybe he just stopped at the comma. Well, the problem with that is that in the, the, the Greek that, that Jesus would have been reading from, there's no commas. They don't have commas. And, um, and, uh, and, 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 and this idea of the, the, the year of Jubilee, as well as the vengeance against their enemies, was closely tied together for Israel. They would have known this passage. It's not like they didn't know it and Jesus was stopping there for fun. They had this memorized. They would have had the whole chapters and chapters memorized. They would have been waiting for that line. It's like if you're at a ball game and someone's singing the national anthem. 
And you get to the end and they say, or the land of the free. And you just stop. Home of the brave. Say it. The day of vengeance of our God. Say it. They would have been ready for that. And Jesus doesn't say it. Why not? Well, what I think is interesting is that biblical scholars actually disagree about it. They disagree about a lot of things. But one interpretation is that Jesus is saying that for right now, he's bringing good news for the poor and freedom for the captive and all this awesome stuff. But, uh, but the vengeance, that's going to come later. That's, that's the second coming. That's when Jesus comes back the second time. That's one interpretation. Other interpreters would say that Jesus is intentionally editing out the portraits of physical violence and divine vengeance that Israel had been looking for against their national enemies. What makes things even more complicated is that anytime you see a New Testament writer that's quoting uh, a passage from the Old Testament, it's always going to be a short little passage. It's going to be one or two lines because it's a literary style of the time to quote a little bit, but imply the whole thing. So for Jesus to say, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing may mean the whole thing. But how does that work? Regardless of why Jesus did this, it got their attention because they were looking for it. They had tied together uh, justice and jubilee with vengeance against their enemies. Greg Boyd says the vengeance they expected God to bring on their enemies was a central aspect to the favor they expected the Lord to show to them. Their good news was centered on the bad news they anticipated for their enemies. So I'd say whatever you think Jesus stopped there for, it got their attention because they were wondering, what did he mean? Just the way we're wondering right now, what does he mean? They were on the edge of their seats and they were listening and they were marveling at what he had to say. But that wasn't the thing that made them mad. So we have to keep reading. Because in verse 22, he starts talking, they, they, they start talking to themselves and they say, wait a second, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this the carpenter's kid? We know him. He's been doing all these miracles and stuff. Why don't you do a miracle for us? But Jesus didn't do a miracle that day. See, what they expected Jesus to do, who they expected him to be was not what he was interested in. And I think sometimes for us, we should ask, what type of Jesus are we expecting? What Messiah are we looking for? Are, are, is there something that is limiting who Jesus is and who he wants to be in our life? Is there a perspective from our past, from our upbringing, from our background, maybe even a perspective of our religion, maybe a perspective of our nationality that is limiting who Jesus wants to be in our lives? Even maybe Jesus has been someone for you in the past, but he says, I want to do something new in you. See, the people in the synagogue that day were limited in who, who, what their perspective of Jesus was and who he was going to be. So Jesus starts recognizing their doubt. He hears them talking, and, uh, and, and he tells them a couple little funny riddles, kind of like old sayings. He says, a prophet isn't accepted in, in his hometown. And what he's basically doing at this point, he's rolling up his sleeves and saying, okay, <clears throat> You're not going to like this, but this is what I'm really getting at here. This is what I mean. And he goes on 
in verses 25 through 28, and he, he talks about Elijah and Elisha. He talks about the old days, how when there was a famine in the land and there was many widows who were in need, Elijah was sent to none of them. Instead, he was sent to a Sidonian woman, someone who was on the outside, an outsider. And she was blessed. She experienced the miracle. And when there was lots of people in, in that needed healing and many lepers that, that none of them were healed, instead, Elisha was sent to Naaman who was their enemy. He was a Syrian. Not only a Syrian, he was, he was part of the military. Not only part of the military, he was actually an officer, a military officer of your enemy, and God was going to them. And in verse 28, it says, when they heard these things, all the synagogue was filled with wrath. That's what did it. That's what broke the tension. That's what made them mad. Because it wasn't that they that he was saying, I'm bringing good news for the poor. They already knew about that. They had the law. It was in the law to take care of the poor and the widow and the orphan. But now Jesus was saying, I'm not coming just for them. I'm also coming for the widow, the orphan, the poor who are your enemy. And in fact, God has been doing this for a long time. God has always been doing that. God has always been reaching the outsider. He's always been going to the outside edges because he's looking for people who are going to respond to him. See, the problem was that Israel hadn't been responding. They hadn't been responding to God. And so God is going to someone who's going to respond to you, uh, to respond to him. And Jesus is saying, where were you? I was here. I was moving. So I'm going to go to someone who will respond. He was challenging the, the, their idea of Jubilee. He was challenging their idea of vengeance. He was connecting the year of Jubilee, what would be good for them, with blessing and grace and love for the outsider. And that's what made them mad. He was challenging their idea of justice. He was expanding their, their, their concept, their definition of the poor and who that would be. And they would have none of that. How dare you say that? How dare you say that God's people, God, that God is not blessing God's people in the way that we think that he should? Israel's God was rescuing the wrong people. And this is a big deal because <clears throat> during the, this time when Jesus is saying this, the new enemy is Rome. The great, the great empire of Rome. Rome is the new Babylon. Rome is the new Egypt. Rome is the new enemy. And the tension here was huge. Think about the tension in America right now between Republicans and Democrats, between the left and the right. Think about all those angry Facebook posts that I know you don't get involved with, but maybe your crazy uncle does. I don't have a crazy uncle. Um... Think about that sort of tension and then imagine that God is saying, I'm going to the other side. Whatever side you think you're on, I'm blessing them. That's some tension. Those godless liberals, I'm going to go bless them. Those stubborn right-wing Republicans, I'm going to go bless them. I'm going to use them. God isn't a Republican or a Democrat. You can send your angry emails to Raphael at goodnews.church. Tell him you don't want to hear me preach again. Um, that's the kind of tension I'm talking about. 
Now ramp that up by 10 because, because Israel was under their rule. That tension is what, that, that, that's what's going on in the synagogue. So you can start to see how it might make them mad. Unless they could see that this was the time for their God to be gracious. Unless they abandoned their futile dreams of military victory over their national enemies. They would suffer defeat themselves at every level. Military, political, and theological. This is N.T. Wright. Here at the climax of the gospel story, Jesus' challenge and warning brings about a violent reaction. The gospel still does this today when it challenges all interests and agendas with the news of God's surprising grace. The gospel is still offensive. The gospel still makes us uncomfortable. And I'm not talking about using the gospel to be offensive to people you don't like or disagree with. The good news, the gospel, is offensive to people who have the wrong idea about what the good news is. The good news should always be challenging us, should always be pushing us, should always be poking at the things that we're uncomfortable with. And I would say that until we've been offended by the good news, we haven't heard the good news. Until it has challenged us over and over, challenged our way of thinking, and turned it upside down, I don't think we've heard the good news. So how has the gospel offended you? How has it challenged you and pushed you in ways that you're not comfortable with? For the Israelites, it was challenging their certainty about the image of God. They were certain he worked in certain ways through certain people and only in these ways and only at these times. And when he comes, it's going to look like this. When Jesus comes, it's going to happen this way. And Jesus was challenging that. And that made them uncomfortable. God loves us and God uses us. And if we only do these things, we can make sure it stays that way. He was challenging the limits of their grace. Their need for vengeance. Their view of a violent God and their sense of exclusivity as the chosen people. He was poking at the areas that they were the most confident in and yet the most sensitive about. He was poking at the security they'd found in their religion. He was poking at the security they'd found in their nationality. Poking at the security and comfort that they had found in their community. Maybe Jesus is not interested in the things that we are interested at times. Maybe Jesus has a way to challenge us and the good news can challenge us in new ways that we may not be comfortable with. And what could those be? Uh, Maybe you've grown up in church or maybe you've come to church for a very long time. Maybe God's not interested in our attendance record. Maybe he's asking us, are you going to the poor? Are you going to the outsider? Where is your heart? Maybe he's not interested in our nationalistic agendas. Maybe he's asking us, are you going to the poor? Are you loving the outcast? Are you loving your enemy? Maybe he's challenging our ideas of what justice looks like, of what judgment looks like for others, and says, you worry about where your heart is. The good news can be offensive to us. So now that we kind of get an idea of what... What made the Nazarenes so mad that they wanted to run them off a cliff? What should we learn from this? 
what can we understand about Jesus and about the good news? What if Jesus was here today? What would he say to us? Would it be that much different? I think he would point out, first of all, that his mission is to the outsider. His mission is to the poor. This was his manifesto. Jesus has been going around to all these different towns, preaching about the poor, preaching about loving your enemies. And he's been doing miracles. And what he's doing is he's setting up little kingdom communities. These places where the poor and the outcast have value and worth. And this is the kingdom of God. And I think he would do the same thing today. Is our mission the same as Jesus' mission? Are we those kingdom communities who, who, who look for the poor, look for the outcasts and go to them? Or, or are we distancing ourselves from them? Let's be the kingdom community in our church, in your small group, in your family, in this city. Whatever that looks like for you. Be a community of kingdom of God. Are we on the same mission as Jesus? And who are the poor? Who are the poor for us today? Well, certainly it is the poor, those in need, the homeless, those who have nothing. We need to go to them and our heart needs to be for them. But it also includes people who are on the edge of society, who are outcasts today in our society or even in our church community. It includes the foreigner, the refugee, the homosexual, the transgender, people of different religions and political parties and faiths. It's Hollywood and the coastal elite. It could be people that look different than you or talk different than you or believe something different than you who might be the poor. And these are the people that Jesus is coming for. This is who the good news is for. God is going to them. God is drawing all people to himself for his glory. He's looking for people to respond to him. Just like Israel. The problem was that Israel wasn't responding. So he's saying, I'm going to go to someone who is. So we need to make sure that we are responding to him and going to the poor in the same way that Jesus did. That we are, we are setting up, we are expanding this, communi- this kingdom community the same way that Jesus did. In a couple chapters, we're going to read that Jesus talks about the kingdom and says the kingdom is expanding, it's advancing. It, think of it like it's exploding out. That is our job. That's what we're supposed to be doing by going to the poor and going to our enemy and going to the people who we are not comfortable going to. Maybe we're not comfortable with the way they live. Maybe we're not comfortable with how they talk. Maybe we're not comfortable being around them. But Jesus is saying, I'm for them. I'm going to them. They are my ministry. They are going to make up the kingdom of God. Because in Matthew, he says in his big sermon on the mount, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's, when we understand that completely, that is challenging. And we should read that every day. And we should constantly be putting ourselves in the place of the poor, in the feet of the poor, and checking to see, are we advancing the kingdom of God? So that's my question. Are we in the kingdom or are we out of the kingdom? Are we an insider 
Are we an outsider? Do we feel like an insider or do we feel like an outsider? As we were working on this message as, a, as our sermon planning team and talking about this idea of being near and far from Jesus and the insider-outsider thing, Carrie made a profound statement. I don't think she thought it was profound, but I think it should be the theme of the book of Luke, this upside-down kingdom, because she said, whatever, whatever you think your answer is, your instinct is probably wrong. Our instincts about how life works are often wrong. Jesus is coming to challenge our instincts about how the gospel works, about how justice works, about how grace and love and mercy work, and who gets them. Because he's saying they are for all people. In a way, every one of us should feel like an outsider. The insider is an outsider if he hasn't humbled himself. We should all feel like an outsider until we've let every single part of us be viewed in the lens of God's grace. Until we've been challenged and offended and transformed over and over. And this is not just a one-time thing. This happens over and over throughout following Jesus. The more and more the disciples followed Jesus, the more they would find new things that needed to be turned over. New ways of thinking that needed to be transformed And this is the life of following Jesus. This is what the gospel, the good news does. Being transformed over and over by the story of Jesus. Maybe you've grown up in church. Maybe you've spent a lot of time doing all the right things. Maybe your perspective of Jesus is stuck on something you've had in the past. Maybe something in your past is skewing your perspective of Jesus and limiting what he's come to do and the grace he's come to bring to your own life. Maybe you're only looking for Jesus in certain people, in certain types of people. Maybe you're looking for him to work in specific ways and Jesus is challenging that today. He's saying I have a different set of values than you. This kingdom I'm bringing, this kingdom I'm setting up, is going to challenge you. It's going to offend you. It's going to be hard. Because it's going to challenge your natural, instinctual way of thinking. I'm going to do things you don't expect, I'm going to heal people you don't expect. I'm going to hang out with people you don't think I should be hanging out with. This is what Jesus says. I'm going to teach things that seem opposite of what makes sense to you. I'm going to tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to take care of itself. If you want to be the greatest, you need to be the least. I'm setting up an upside-down kingdom that is unlike every other kingdom you've ever seen, anything you can come up with on your own, because that's the kingdom of God. That's the way that God does things. He does things in an upside-down sort of way. And when I take the throne, when I become king, I'm not going to do it like Rome does it. I'm not going to do it like empires do it. I'm not going to do it like America or any other country does it by, by war and by taking new power and going up the ladder. I'm not going to become king like Rome. 
who builds crosses for its enemies. I'm going to bear one for them. Jesus doesn't build the crosses for his enemies. He bears it for them. This is the most upside down part of the entire gospel. Because this is when we realize that Jesus has made his enemies his friends. And when we look at our enemies, we should not see them as enemies. We should see our friends, our brothers, our sisters. When we see the poor and the outcast, this is how we should see them. I think that's what Jesus would say today. I think he would continue to say the same thing. So let's go back to Luke 14, Luke 4, verse 18. And let's read this manifesto, this mission of God with that in mind and see what God would have to say to us. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You bow your heads. This is what Jesus is saying to us today. This is his mission. And here's what I want to leave you with. If you heard nothing else, take this away. For those of us who are following Jesus, for those of us who are in the kingdom of God and trying to expand the kingdom of God at whatever level, actively or inactively, we should constantly be in a place of humility when we consider our own status in the kingdom. I'll say that again. We should constantly, perpetually be in a place of humility as we think about being the insider, about being inside the kingdom of God. And we should be creating empathy and mercy and love for those who we think are the outsider, for the poor and even the poor who are our enemy. And who's our enemy? be a lot of different people for you might be someone that has hurt you might be someone who has said something or done something maybe legitimately really really hurt you i want you to think about them i want you to think about the poor not just those without money but but those who are on the outside edges of society the outcasts the ones who are surely outside of the kingdom of God. Then imagine Jesus going around from town to town, doing miracles and teaching, setting up these kingdom communities. And he goes to that person, just like he goes to the leper, just like he goes to the blind man, just like he goes to, to the tax collector, to the prostitute. He goes to them. And he says, you were healed inside and out you're forgiven go and sin no more Jesus heals 
Jesus forgives. He just forgives. Because that's just what he does. He just goes. He goes to them. He's looking for people to respond. But here's the thing. He does it through you. As we are taking the kingdom, expanding the kingdom, we need to go. We need to go to all people with this good news. And to forgive our enemy. To love them and pray for them. To show grace to the outcast. To show mercy to the outsider. We need to challenge our way of thinking about how we treat them. God's only disposition towards us and towards them is love. He just loves. Jesus closely connects our own reversal of fortunes, our own jubilee, our own wrongs to right with this idea of love and grace and compassion and mercy to the outsider. Jesus totally blows up our ideas of vengeance and of justice and of judgment. He challenges our human concept of justice. Because mercy triumphs over judgment. Father God, I would just ask that you would give us humility, give us empathy, give us mercy and compassion and love for the other. Challenge our perspective. Let the good news of the gospel change and transform us by changing the way we think. Help us to move towards you and in the process, go to the other, go to the outsider. For some of you, you you may not feel like an insider at all. You feel like you're on the outside. Maybe because of your past, maybe because of the way you grew up, maybe because of something you've done or something you're doing right now or something you believe right now or don't believe right now, and you feel like the outsider. And Jesus has a message for you. I've come to bring good news to the poor. He's coming for you. He's coming with love and grace and mercy for you. And you can be in the kingdom. If that's you, at whatever level, for some reason you feel like the outsider, you can respond however is comfortable for you. You can raise a hand stand up. If you want to come down here and pray, you can. I'm not going to do a real formal altar call. But respond because that's what Jesus is looking for. If you feel like you're on the outside of the kingdom, say, God, I humble myself right now. Give me mercy and grace and compassion and love. I respond to you right now. And maybe you've been feeling on the inside for a long time and you're like the religious Nazarenes who have their 
preconceptions about what it will look like when Jesus shows up. Who have an idea of what vengeance and judgment will look like. And right now, we just need to go to all people. That's the mission. If that's you, respond. Respond to Jesus. In your own heart, in your own way, respond to what Jesus has. Because he has love and grace and compassion for the other, for the outsider. Father God in heaven, give us humility. Give us eyes to see where you are moving and how your kingdom is expanding. Help us to see the poor and the outcast in our life and to look for ways to go to them and to see how you right now are moving in their life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I pray that grace and love and compassion would be full in your life this week. stand to your feet if you would. We're going to invite our prayer workers to come. And uh, if you want to just spend some time in prayer, you can come down to the front and uh, the prayer workers, will they won't pray with you unless you would like prayer. But if you're here today and you realize you're an outsider and, and you're an outsider because of your sin and your sin has kept you from God, uh, today is the day of salvation for you. We encourage you to come and to turn from your sin and trust Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. We'd love the opportunity to pray with you in these altars. God bless you. God bless you. Go advance the kingdom of God in your sphere of influence.